Welcome to Notes from the Field, brought to you by Noeo Science. Hey, how you doing, Will? Hey, Gordon. How are you, good buddy? Good. Very good. Good to be back here with you. Yep. Excellent. And we're uh, we're going to be talking about a, a subject um, that I think uh, just the just the word itself kind of makes you think, makes you make a squinting face or an eyebrow raised or kind of surprised look on your face. But it begs a couple of important questions, and I think it kind of opens up a discussion, mm-hmm. um, which could be applied to kind of the, how we approach it. Could be applied to other uh, types of, of of stewardship questions that mm-hmm. the, the Christian should consider at some point. Yeah, uh, depending on how far uh, along you are and you're thinking on this, and and the topic of today's conversation is going to be de-extinction. Yeah, we've already talked about extinction. Yeah. And Just how we- put a DE in front of yeah, it. Yeah. How we've in the past made made a hash out of our responsibility and exercising wise dominion over the creation. And um, quite a few animals inadvertently or on purpose have been thrown under the bus. And uh, that's extinction. But yeah, discussing the uh, possibility of de-extinction, meaning bringing things back. Bringing things back. And uh, with the technology that we've developed. Yeah. Um, which is, uh, yeah. It's come a long way. Yeah, and this, it's come this, a long way. It's and coming it's... closer and closer to, f- to not just fiction yeah. anymore. Yeah. And so the reason I, I became interested in this topic, uh, I remember back in undergrad days, there was, I had kind of a, uh, just a, an enthusiastic, exciting ecology professor who would get up on the table and, and just, uh, uh, just really, he was quite a character. He captured our attentions. He took us on fun field trips. And I remember him bringing this up. Back then, even mid, uh, mid to late 90s, there were folks who were already working on this idea and setting aside land in Siberia and uh, naming that area Pleistocene Park. Wow. With just kind of this ambitious yeah. hope to bring back some of this megafauna. Right. That we're pretty sure lived there um, up until about 4,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that seems like a pretty good reckoning. This is one of the rare instances where maybe uh, the, the old earth and young earthers earth agree kind of, yeah. on the an extinction date. <clears throat> and that creature primarily that they were interested in and, and which many people still are interested in, in bringing back is, is the woolly mammoth. Right. And so maybe we should define our terms first. Yeah, go ahead. De-extinction uh, requires, uh, in the most narrow sense, it requires extinction. Right. Meaning no live individuals left at all. Right. And so the woolly mammoth certain, certainly meets that, uh, that uh, definition. Yeah. So you want to unpack that more? You want to go into actually the methodology of yeah. the, the technology that they've developed and tried to hone over the years. Yeah, let me give a little history and then hop in at any point regarding sure. that history uh, in the development of, the, of that, uh, our, our kind of ability to genetically manipulate. Uh, there was a, a de-extinction effort, and this was uh, right around the early 2000s. There was a, a subspecies of, of um, a Pyrenean in the Pyrenees, yeah. a Pyrenees goat. Ibex. Yeah, it's a Pyrenees Ibex, this beautiful beautiful horns and um, pretty big type of, of mountain goat. And this individual uh, species, they were called Bucardo, and that was kind of their common name, the Bucardos. And uh, they were being closely watched. 
the, their population numbers were dwindling over time. They, they were monitoring them closely and they were aware of and watching actively the, the sole living survivor. So it got down to one female in the population. Mm. They took a skin sample from that animal before it died and then put it in liquid nitrogen to preserve it with the hopes of having the technology to do something with it right. further along the lines. Now, because I've heard that they, they're using somatic cells for de-extinction, somatic cells, for those of you who don't know, it's the just body cells. And I'm just curious why they don't try to go to the germline, because the germline, which are the cells, the oogonia and the spermatogonia are the cells that, that are diploid and are also haven't gone through as much genetic entropy because they are sort of cloistered away right at the cells, beginning yep. of, you know, embryological development. So they don't go through uh, many, many rounds of mitosis. And consequently, they don't, they aren't as subject to the de-evolution of genetic entropy. And so when you, you clone a somatic cell and try to pop it into an egg, yeah, you know, they're short when they clone the, the dolly, dolly, the sheep, yep. you know, it, uh, didn't it, wasn't its lifespan short because it was already the, the it, telomeres and the chromosomes? I don't know if that, uh, it lived six to seven years. I don't know how much below average that is. Okay. It yeah. did produce several, uh, Several um, uh, reproductive, uh, I don't know what you call a sheep, uh, several clutches or several litters of sheep. Uh, so it did reproduce successfully multiple times. Okay. Uh, but I don't know if it, uh, Dolly's lifespan was shorter than average. Okay, yeah, that's sure just that. curious. Yeah. And whether the somatic cell is just not as good a place to, to harvest, but apparently they, the experts know that that's, yeah, that that's does, the best. Yeah, that does seem to be the case with the woolly mammoth. So this Bicardo... It was a rare opportunity to actually have a population that hadn't gone extinct yet so we could get living cells before they all died off. And living cell is kind of the holy grail for cloning, mm -hmm. right? You ne really need a living cell with the entire genome package together in one place. Because when it's dead, it starts to, you know, starts degrade. To degrade. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the case with the woolly mammoth. We don't have any living cells. Mm -hmm. We have more and more thawed out frozen um, mm -hmm. woolly mammoth fossils, quote unquote. I don't know if they meet the term uh, or, well, yeah, or definition of fossil. If if, yeah, unfossilized in the sense that preserved, it's not but min not fossilized. Yeah, yeah, it's not mineralized. So yeah, that's. Uh, so how expensive is this uh, endeavor? Yeah, I'm, I've I heard it's I very expensive. It, I assume it's shockingly expensive. Um, and so, uh, especially if you're the woolly mammoth and you're having to figure out how to patch in the you know, the, the lesions in the DNA that, uh, due to the degradation. Absolutely. And so the kind of the lead researcher, one of the lead researchers in the world on the woolly mammoth front, and I came across this, uh, in researching de-extinction and there was a series of, there was a series or a TEDx event in 2016 that was entitled de-extinction actually brought together some of the lead researchers and philosophers, uh, including David Ehrenfeld, including Stanley Temple. Uh, including some big names in kind of the history of 20th century biology, but also uh, the lead researchers as well. And it was a several day summit where researchers presented on their projects, um, but also where philosophers uh, engaged in some, in some back and forth. And several mm -hmm. of those philosophers definitely cautioning against this, uh, this kind of activity. Right. Um, but one of the lead researchers for uh, the woolly mammoth de-extinction project is George Church at Harvard. 
And George Church, uh, you know, I've watched several interviews with him and read some read some uh, things by him. Um, and he now has a privately fu- uh, a company that's private that's funding his research efforts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he was moonlighting for years. It was all out of Harvard's out on, of- on his probably his own dime late at night. Right. But now and he I have had no a- trouble with that. I mean, you know, if there's if someone's wanting to privately do something and bring something back, you know, that's on their nickel or their millions. <laughs> yeah. So again, uh, one of the que- one of the questions, be, uh, the two questions that come up first. We've been talking about this in class. One should should de-extinction be on the table mm-hmm. uh, for the Christian in the stewardship toolbox? And if it, if yes, then what uh, what criteria should be used to pick the best candidate species? Mm. And so I've been having my students debate this a little bit over the right. last week, and uh, some of them would make a case that you know because we don't have the complete genome, the way this works with the woolly mammoth is that they are actually uh, taking a, an, a, an Asian elephant somatic cell, and they've done about 50 edits so far. So okay. they're using this CRISPR-Cas9 genetic editing technique, which won a Nobel Prize in the early 2000s, right. which is and a really so, powerful tool. And so, so they've made 50 edits, but there are a total of a million base pairs difference between a woolly mammoth and an Asian elephant. Right. So they've made 50 edits. Wow. And the comparison that- And do they know where they need to patch the, you know, what uh, genes or sets of genes are essential in the woolly mammoth to be a viable- This, their first- I guess that's- Their first iteration, it sounds like they've identified 60 genes that need to be edited. And they've- Need to be edited or added or needed Needed- I guess I, I'm not distinguishing I, in taking one out and inserting another or adding another one altogether. I, would, I right. would lump editing into kind of a broader generalization. Okay. I don't know the details of each of those edits, but they include things uh, like thicker fat layer, of course, uh, hair, and some of the more obvious, uh, the domed skull. They think they've identified those genes successfully hmm. and have made the edits to them. Yeah. It's sort of hard to look at gene sequences and, and figure out what part of the body I guess you have to know or have to figure it out on a live elephant, what parts of the body, what genes are responsible for what parts for of what the body. For what protein, yeah. right. No, it's a humongous undertaking. Yeah. Lots of research uh, going on there. Yeah. Um, I and haven't so, looked into the actual details of the, the whole process, but I'm basically uh, watching from afar yeah. saying, okay, if you guys figure it out, and so um, they would they would make continue making those edits and then do a nuclear transfer where they put that somatic cell DNA into the uh, egg cell of an Asian elephant and then she's the surrogate mother. Okay, gives birth to that first quote unquote. And one of my students had a really funny quip. He said, "This is th- all this is is an Asian elephant with a hair costume." <laughs> and so he, he really strongly made a case against this um, because we really don't know what we're making. Mm-hmm. Um, we think we have an idea of, of what needs to be done to, to change this creature into an, uh, into an actual woolly mammoth, um, but uh, getting there and then getting a sustainable population on the ground, right. um, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot a lot of, of peril a lot of work. along the way, too. I think we don't know, we don't know how they're going to behave or what they're going to do. And... Now, on, a, on various extinct creatures that are more recently extinct, yeah. do they feel like they've got the complete genome in the somatic cell and preserved tissue, you know, whether it's a Carolina parakeet right. or the, well, the moa was several hundred years ago, 
No, so I think there's a direct correlation between how much knowledge we have and how long ago something yeah. went distinct, extinct. Right. And so we don't have quite so much about the woolly mammoth. We certainly have more about the woolly mammoth than we do, say, a yeah. T-Rex. Um, but another creature that's, that's two creatures that have come up as candidate species and there are active research projects going on are the passenger, passenger pigeon mm -hmm. uh, and the American chestnut. Right. Now, the American chestnut is still there, it just succumbs to the... Uh the uh, chestnut blight. Right. When so it's, this, uh, you know, several decades old and it never gets to be the mammoth tree that it used to be. That's right. In the Appalachians. So are they just trying to get a, a line that is immune to the fungus? There are um, three different research efforts. And mm -hmm. so this, of course, as you pointed out, doesn't meet the narrow definition of the extinction. Right. This is a functionally extinct organism in that it doesn't reproduce in the wild. But it does sprout up. It asexually reproduces. It sprouts up from an old stump every every couple years, and um, yeah, they'll gr they'll grow to a point, and then the, they'll succumb to the fungal infection. So right. it exists across the landscape. You just don't see its presence. Yeah, and it's not producing nuts. Right. right. Yeah, and so there's a transgenic effort there, like we described with the woolly mammoth, uh, where they're taking the Chinese chestnut, which is uh, right. immune Very to yeah. We had friends in Virginia had a Chinese chestnut. Yeah. Huge. It looked very much like the American chestnut, but, you know, it was immune to the uh, fungus. Immune to the fungus. And so the, the Chinese chestnut actually produces a compound which basically breaks down the oxalic acid that is produced by the fungus. The fungus produces oxalic acid, which causes cankers and blistering and eventually girdles the tree and then it dies. Right. And so they've spliced a couple of genes in from the Chinese chestnut. And they're in, golly, probably a decade of testing right. uh, the, the, this, the offspring of this transgenic effort. There's also a hybridization effort where they actually truly cross the Chinese chestnut with a, an American chestnut. Okay. So it, since the Chinese chestnut is very similar, yeah. I mean, uh, rather than say we want to just do all the splicing, why not just, uh, I mean, it's the same genus. Uh, why don't they just have the Chinese chestnut? in the Appalachians. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think- I mean, Maybe uh, there's some things about the American chestnut that would make it much more adapted to the uh, Eastern United States. But yeah, these are just questions that I was yeah, throwing Yeah, I think, out. I think a purist, from a purist perspective, there would be the, uh, the genome of the American chestnut would be most American chestnut doing the transgenic effort. You're mm -hmm. only adding a couple of genes fixed, instead of yeah. making it one sixteenth Chinese chestnut. Right. Um, but even better news out there, the state of Maine, we have actually found living, mature, nut-producing American chestnuts. You're kidding. And so they what? are rapidly uh, becoming popular. Uh, I have a few on back order. I'm trying to get them out okay, here just to so put in my yard. Are they just happen to be immune or they just haven't been uh, exposed to the No, fungus? they happen to be immune as far as I know. And so they are being cultivated. They are being grown in greenhouses from these wild right. chestnuts, which, well, which I think is the best stewardship oh, answer. Yeah. That's great. Um, unfortunately, money and politics are going to dictate otherwise. Oh, yeah. You know, and that's why I say it's much more of a thorny issue when, when you're dealing with, do we go ahead with something that's very expensive like de-extinction from the taxpayer? You know, a lot of people would just raise it. You know, I don't want my... Uh, if any money is going to go to conservation, it should be to those that are already threatened or endangered and 
the money, there'd be a lot more bang for the buck if we just put more efforts into keeping extant creatures from going over the brink into extinction. And if we But if somebody is just a, a wealthy, you know, private it's just a private enterprise and they're funding it and you know when i would I'm, say it's rarely that simple right it's almost right. always a multi-organization collaborative between effort. private local state and federal effort, uh, individuals and agencies one thing i think that is clear here though is that there it would be far cheaper and better to to keep the same chestnut there that was yeah, originally there if sure. we have an immune immune individual yeah that that's great it's kind of a um, neat story that's unfolding uh, regarding the American chestnut. Right. And from a biblical standpoint, we know that ethics doesn't really make sense from a Darwinian perspective because it's all relative. But from a biblical standpoint, we know that God has given us dominion and we are to exercise that wisely so that, and says, rule over the fish, the sea, the birds of the air, and all of the creatures so that they f are fruitful and multiply. Well, because of our poor dominion, a lot of them have gone extinct. And just a, an effort to fix that, it doesn't seem to be, I mean, on the surface of it, there may be all sorts of complicating issues, but on the surface of it, the whole enterprise of de-extinction doesn't seem to be a problem. But we have to think ecologically because if you bring right. something back like a mammoth and you're saying, well, we got places in Siberia, well, do we know what the mammoth, you know, it might be a whole lot more snowier, you know? Yeah. And are they going to be what, able to even survive? Will they be in able their new to survive? Habitat. Because, yeah. you know, what did they eat? Now, I know that they've got frozen mammoths and they've, they've looked at gut contents, but does the tundra or uh, upper or wherever the tiger and tundra, yeah. the tiger and tundra will it have all of the necessary vegetation that's needed right. to keep these beasts and what know, a and what impact population. will they have on the other creatures that are right. already there? Right, that's a huge now, question. Yeah, and I think I'm the American chestnut rises to the top there also right? because this was a keystone species that fed a ton of wildlife. Right. And I would say it's it's a, it's more fundamental to the ecosystem right. of the Ohio River Valley right. than say the woolly mammoth is necessarily to the exactly. Tundra. Yeah. Uh, and we we know that certain tree species have taken its place as the chestnut the uh, oaks. was gone. The oaks took over, and so if it is restored to its rightful place in the in the community in the ecosystem, then yeah, some other species will have to move over, but not necessarily get pushed out. The right. oaks were there they already, were there before, right? but just the ratios will change yeah. in the plant community. But yeah, it's uh, interesting, even though th this is sort of one of those controversial issues um, and you can actually get yourself labeled a kook if you think that the ivory-billed, I don't know if we ivory talked about the ivory-billed woodpecker. Uh, just of late, I've been talking to a person from uh, Louisiana who's uh, on the uh, Mission Ivory Bill. Oh. And uh, he he just emailed me yesterday. Ooh, you got my attention. Yes. And uh, he's, he's convinced, as well as many, many people, that he knows, and he's sort of spearheading this operation to show that to the, and demonstrate to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that, no, they're about ready to pronounce it 
and delist it as officially extinct. Okay. I mean, yes, extinct there's always been- Extinct to the been, max. Yeah. That, you know, it's always <laughs> been uh, unofficially labeled extinct. Right. You know, there was that effort in 2004, 2005, where Dr. John Fitzpatrick went down to- yeah. To Arkansas, to the big woods, to with a team of team college of, kids, yeah, looking, and looking for that looking ivory for build. The, I yeah, wanted to and, go on that. Oh yeah. Well, what's really really neat is uh, this this fellow um, uh, emailed me. He's a Christian, and he's uh, he was when he he's my age, and he, he as a kid he knew he was a friend of Doctor uh, Lowry um, at LSU. I think that's the name. Uh, who was, you know, Dr. Ivory Bill okay. at LSU. And he was like a 10-year-old at the time and was sort of a, you know, he even got So he's put got in, Ivory Bills in his blood. Oh, yeah. And he was just this kid that wow. uh, Dr. Lowry took under his wing back then, so to speak. And um, he's he was a lawyer. He says he's a recovering lawyer. Um, he's gotten out of the, <laughs> now he's sort of leading this this charge to show that to the, I think it's tomorrow that he has to go before the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in a hearing to show, don't pronounce this thing extinct. So he he thinks that there's a, a evidence uh, showing that it. they exist. He's seen it. He's How seen recently it. Ha- did he say he's seen uh, 2017, it? 2017, 2019. Oh. And a lot of people have, a lot of, not just kooky people that think uh, pileated is uh, ivory bill, but- People that know and are very, very familiar with the pileated woodpecker and know the flight pattern of the pileated woodpecker. Yeah. And uh, this guy is leading the charge. Ooh, very uh, fun. He was a former president of the Louisiana Ornithological Society. And uh, wow. he's, he's um, Christian. Neat. And so he invited me to the Zoom meeting, the uh, mission- Ooh. Mission Ivory Bill, and the Zoom cool. meeting was last night, and uh, it was just wonderful to just hear a, a couple experts. One of them was John Fitzpatrick, who led the expedition in 2004-2005. Yeah. He was in the Zoom meeting. Okay. And uh, I got he's to He's a meet, Cornell guy. He's a Cornell guy. He's, yeah. he's emeritus. And um, so, that you know, what, generally among birders, you- a lot of people are very dubious about the veracity of the various eyewitness accounts. Yeah, I remember um, watching videos. Yeah, they put up they put up trail cams and recorded videos and and recorded audio. Right. I remember watching and listening to those. And it's possible that it's extinct. You know, we can't necessarily be dogmatic, but based on these eyewitness accounts of people that know their their stuff, the the burden of proof should be uh, with the people that want to declare it extinct and say, you know, we have got, we have surveyed exhaustively and we have very good reason to not trust all these eyewitness accounts, which yeah. are trickling in with people that know their, know their stuff. And the consequence being that there, there's no longer going to be a funding pool available to search right. for this um, creature. Yeah, well, there's political reasons why. If you pronounce it extinct, then the um, the protection of the ecosystem is less stringent. Okay, right. Yeah, and so so that makes there's, sense. There's there's politics there. But, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
you know, I'm not I'm not trying to disparage anyone in this endeavor. There's there's skeptics and there's believers. I happen to be a believer just because I listened to this this fellow and uh, I really trust his eyewitness account. Uh, he he got some audio of them and saw them, and it was you know that lead that that trailing edge of the wing with the white on the underside. It was clear, and then they do fly much more like a like a waterfowl they 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 don't have the uh same kind of undulation bou- undulation yeah they fly just less bouncy yeah and uh faster hmm kind of like a whistling duck oh man you've piqued my interest again and so this is good stuff yeah it's and it's exciting. a fun it's a fun um we don't ever want to hear about a creature going extinct, but it right. is a, it's a blessing that there's mystery right. there in is, our world. And there is we're going to, we're going to discover creatures that we thought were extinct. Yeah. And we do every few years. Yeah. So, and uh, what a blessing. So Ivory Bill wouldn't be uh, a necessarily a candidate for de-extinction until we know for sure. It'd that be it's... a definite candidate for getting a little bit of skin cells though and holding on to them yeah. on in liquid nitrogen. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you find others in the wild and you're just wanting to expand the gene pool. Yeah. And not, especially if it's such a small population that it's doomed to extinction unless you get more. So it's a possibility that there's a combination of efforts of conservation as well as de-extinction. Yeah. So anyway. Good fun. It's just, it's pretty exciting. And if you're from Louisiana or Arkansas or Florida or some of the places where there have been possible sightings in this uh, hardwood bottomland, uh, yeah, one of the area. great biomes of our of our country down there, this big wet hardwood forest, yeah, cool stuff. Fun talking about this Ex- topic. I think it brings up it brings up uh, the the mystery of God's creation. It brings up kind of uh, the current state of the technology mm-hmm. all in one, uh, one big ball. And yeah. so kind of interesting to look at a few of these cases and think through the, the questions that we want to ask as stewards, should, should we be taking part in this type of thing? And, and if so, what should that look like? Right. And like I said earlier, the ecosystem has to be ready. If something is successfully brought back from extinction, it needs to be able to, uh, survive. You yep. just don't want to put in all that effort and then have it, you know, fall back into extinction right away. And to look at the possible consequences of how all of the other uh, species in that ecosystem have to adjust yeah. their ratios to let this new new kid, or shall we say the old kid on the block, is yeah. back on the block. Yeah. And incidentally, that mountain goat species was the first creature to go extinct twice. Wow. They did actually have a successful pregnancy and that uh, a calf was born and then it succumbed mm. to a, a lung defect. Oh, wow. Respiratory distress. Wow. Um, so. All right. Well, this is hopefully perks your interest to, to realize that there's a vast creation out there and a lot of things that we didn't even know existed. and. Um, more to we be wanna, uncovered. Yeah. Yeah. We want to keep keep the ones that we have around and and uh maybe discuss those that we might be able to bring back. Yeah. Very good. All right. Good chatting with you, Gordon. We'll see you, Will. See ya. 
Thank you for listening. And remember, for all your homeschool science needs, go to noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O science.com.